What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, we have another Q&A, and today I am joined by our client success manager, Jody. Jody, thank you for being here. Of course. I'm so happy to be a regular. <laughs> so um, I'm going to have you introduce yourself in just a moment. Basically, for the listeners, really within these Q&As, rather than me just talking to myself, I wanted this to turn much more into a conversation, and we kind of came to the conclusion that, Jody, you're essentially the perfect fit for this, right? One, you're coming from a place that, or when you started coaching with our team, um, you were coming from a place that a lot of the women we work with are coming from when they're starting coaching. So I think one, like from that perspective, it's so valuable. And two, also, it's just so much more fun to talk to another person than just like talk to myself and laugh at my own joke. So I'm stoked to have you here. Um, for the listeners who might not know, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do here? Yeah, absolutely. On a personal level, um, I am a working mom of um, twins that are 10 years old and really prioritizing my fitness and nutrition. So it's nice on the other level to be able to join this team. Um, Really what I do as far as helping with the team is uh, the client success manager. I do a lot of onboarding, um, just helping with pitfalls um, with some of the clients, um, helping with some of the background stuff, organization, planning, um, but you know, also soaking in the knowledge that I gained from three amazing coaches. I'm excited to have you on here as well because you also have so much knowledge and honestly expertise in this area to give that kind of complements what we do rather than like it's not necessarily overlapping to like you have a very unique understanding of mindset and how to help people through all these things psychologically that I know has been a huge asset to our team as well. So I'm excited for you to be able to kind of like put that out here and like how this is a platform to do that as well. Well, thanks. And I think it's a unique, something unique I can bring on a personal level. It's just, it's human nature, right? You know, you understand the struggles of um, wanting to be fit and to look good and to reach your goals. And then like, I guess you can say the mind fucks that we probably do to ourselves or self-sabotaging, like I've been there, but also just learning, you know, basic psychology and the background that I have on, you know, ways to overcome that. So it's it's nice to blend the two worlds. I love it. Cool. Well, again, I am so to have you here. Um, are you ready to get into this Q and A? Yeah, abs- actually, are you ready to get into the Q and A? I am ready. I just had you know me. I had to have a little fun with you. So we do have some questions from um, that we got on Instagram in your DMs, but I just wanted to open up with a few questions of my own for you, Jeremiah. All right, let's do it. So we're gonna. We're going to start off easy. Um, what is your go-to, go-to guilty snack? Go-to guilty snack. Oh, man. I really, I love gelato. I don't, I don't like to frame it as like my guilty snack because normally it's like I'll work it in or else just like on the day where I have my fruit meal. I would say gelato. I honestly really love Pop-Tarts also. Um... I would probably have to go with Pop-Tarts. There's literally so many things I can think of, though. Like, is this, like, something I work in on a consistent basis or, like, if I had to choose anything? Well, I'm trying to make you a little human here. So 
what some of us do is say, for instance, like my son comes home or my husband brings over McDonald's French fries and okay. they're not worked into the plan. And those are like a guilty pleasure where I just, it's, you know, you cannot eat just one McDonald's fry. It's that, that's my like little binge or sabotage or guilty snack. Okay. I would say for me, honestly, that's more like probably alcohol than it is like an actual <laughs> food. Like I would say if there's something that it's like, if there's a, if there's something where it's like, uh, this doesn't necessarily align with my goals, but I really want another one. It's probably going to be wine over anything else. I'm, I'm not like a huge foodie. Like I could think of a long list of like, like Doritos. Doritos are amazing, but it's never like, like Katie doesn't like bring home a bag of Doritos and like, I will say there's like a cheddar rice crisps are one food that I typically like can't bring into the house. The little chip ones, especially cause I'll just smash on some of those. Uh, the little peanut butter, the little like peanut butter pretzel bites, like the peanut butter filled pretzel bites. Have you ever had those? Yeah. This is amazing because you are like my 10 year old son. <laughs> <laughs> those are all the well, foods that you just listed off. <laughs> well, I'm glad we have a lot in common. Um, <laughs> I hope you don't give him as hard of a time as you give me. Uh, but keep him on his feet. And those also, uh, Katie sometimes will bring home. And those are definitely ones as well where it's like, okay, we definitely like shouldn't be buying more of those because that's like filling way too much of my macros. But really, I would say if I had to choose something, it would probably be wine. Yeah. All right. Um, question number two, just taking it up a notch. Last TV show you binge watched? Ozark. Are you? I heard that's good. You haven't watched it? If I'm being completely honest, I really don't watch very much TV. By the time I get home, work out, make dinner, help the kids. I mean, if I do. I can't even believe I'm going to say this. I do watch The Bachelor, Bachelorette, but it's kind of in the background. But other than <laughs> that, I really don't have anything consistent. No. Yeah. Okay. The Bachelor, honestly, like Bachelor, Bachelorette, they are kind of interesting. It's been a couple years since, I think it's been like three years since I've like watched it, but like in relationships where it's like, okay, yeah, well, I like I don't like, I'm not interested in this, but it is like, it is, it is. The Bachelor and Bachelorette can definitely suck you in. I can I can appreciate that honestly. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it's it's got me sucked in. Um, I do like this question because I I'm really curious. What song always gets you out on the dance floor? Hot <laughs> Night Joe for sure. <laughs> uh, man, I have to. I have to have a pretty good buzz before I'll start dancing. Honestly, I feel like, I feel like honestly, if I'm going to be dancing, it's almost always, cause normally we'll go to like a wine bar instead of like a club. Right. So it's a little bit different atmosphere. If I'm going to be dancing, it's almost always going to be at a wedding and there's That's almost cool. always going to be like an awful playlist. And I feel like the, like genuinely normally like cotton eye Joe comes on, have a pretty good buzz by that point. Just do do a little jig. You know, I, <laughs> I would honestly say that has to be the song. All right, I love it. Have Have you watched the show New Girl? I don't really watch TV. I'm so sorry. Okay, okay, you wouldn't understand the reference at all. Then we can move on. I I wouldn't. Um, I'm a dancer, so 
I don't really need to get bust. I'm not a really good dancer, but I just love to have fun and dancing at weddings. is like my favorite thing to do in the world. So what's the song for you? It really doesn't take much. You know me well enough that if someone says, let's go dance, I'm like, all right, let's go dance. I twist my arm. It's easy. So I do like it's raining men. It's just fun. <laughs> I have never heard that play. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I'm a little older than you. Okay, um, fair enough. I'll I'll send it to you. It's a fun one. You would I you would get down with it. Um, last question. I mean, I can do this all day, but last question. This is a strange one, but I I like it. Um, if you can live in a movie, which one would it be, and why? Hmm. If I could live in a movie. I would probably choose either Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. Star Wars would probably be cooler. Um, yeah, I would. I would definitely choose Star Wars. I feel like Lord of the Rings would be cool. Also, I was like, I love Lord of the Rings. Like, I obsessively read that book just over and over when I was a little kid. But also, you wouldn't be able to like shower and stuff. You wouldn't have like all the modern conveniences where, like, if you lived in the Star Wars galaxy, you could do all this dope like space stuff. You could shower. That would definitely be my choice. Um, like my like all-time favorite movie is Django Unchained. Have you ever seen that movie? I haven't. <laughs> very, 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 very. Uh, you're you're not the one to talk to about movies and shows. No. Uh, definitely wouldn't want to like live in that movie. Um, I would first sure go with Star Wars. What would be your choice there? Well, I did not think of my answer prior, but for some reason, the movie Clueless is coming my way, just because. I college was fun and I can totally get down with like shopping and being a girl. So, um, Oh no, no, I'm legally blonde. That's what I was thinking. Sorry. I'm mixing my Reese nah. Witherspoon. <laughs> Sorry. Legally blind or le- legally. Really? Blonde, yes. If you could just live in a movie for forever, it would be legally blonde. I don't know. I didn't think about my answer prior. So that was the only thing that came to mind, but, um, I'll think about it and I'll get back to you. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Interesting. Um, all right. So do you want to get into Q and A's from, from Instagram? Yeah, let's do it. All right. I'll hit you up first. Um, great conversation about changing mezzo with Jordan lips Friday follow up when all things are going well at what point should you still consider changing up programming okay so this is an interesting question and i feel like this has come up on quite a few podcasts i was talking to jeff about a very similar one earlier so basically what she's asking if i'm interpreting this correctly is like if things are going well when should i change up my training program correct that's what it sounds like to me So honestly, like what I would say is if things are going well, you don't need to change up your training program. Like the reality is, especially if you're in a hypertrophy program, really, we could run that shit for a very, very long time, just geared towards hypertrophy. You could continue to see progress for a long time. So basically like how this works. So like within our system, we have these different phases that we use that we adapted from in one education and then the team we've learned from at physique development. But um, basically we have hypertrophy phases, neurological phases and metabolic phases. So the thing to understand with training is that like really like when we're moving in and out of phases, it ties into this concept of recovery ability. 
right? So, or trainability. So basically, which recoverability is a part of. So basically on one end, we need to hit a threshold of stimulus. So basically think like time under significant tension, the volume that you're doing, et cetera, as the stimulus. There's a certain threshold of stimulus that we need to hit. So let's say like for your chest, it's, I need to do 10 hard sets this week to hit my stimulus threshold for growth, right? So on one end, we have the stimulus threshold we need to hit. On the other end, we have, so imagine that's a bar that's set like at about right here for me, it's at neck height, right? On the other end, we have our ability to recover, right? Now, ideally when we're entering a silent train, hypertrophy, neurological, metabolic, our recoverability is much higher than are um, the stimulus that we need to elicit adaptation, right? So thus, we know we have a lot of room to make progress. Like there's a large gap there between our recovery ability and the stimulus needed to grow. So thus we have a large amount of room to make progress, right? We call that the trainability of the stimulus. So thing to understand there is over time, the amount of a stimulus that we need to continue to drive along the same rate of adaptation does start to increase, right? So basically what's happening is we need to do a little bit more. Maybe we need to push a little bit harder. We need to add a little bit more volume to continue to, to like meet that stimulus need. So over time, basically, our I wish the listeners could see what I'm doing with my hands here. But is this making sense to you? It makes complete sense. And honestly, I have like a visual in my head. It's just like okay, you I'm want right to. to I, it's it's like you need a graphic, really, right? It's like <laughs> you have a bar. And you want to get over that bar, but you also, when you talk about recoverability, you don't want to push past that. So everything in between is where you want to hit, but you, right. your, your top bar, your top setting point will eventually be moving up. So you'd be hitting higher targets. Is that what you're or saying? Or essentially very, yeah, that's, very, very close. Basically, that bottom bar is just moving closer to the top bar over time. So thus, the potential we have to continue to progress is decreasing over time. Because it's like, if you think about like, when you go, if you're me, when I go run a mile, and if I went and ran a mile right now, it'd be the first time I've run a mile in like a year, um, I would be gassed, right? But over time, if I like ran that same mile every day for two weeks, my body would adapt to it. I would burn nearly as many calories as I did the first time and I would be much more efficient at it. Right. So thus, like if my goal was burning calories there, I would need to do more to burn the same amount of calories. Now here, we're not talking about calories burned, of course, um, definitely not what we would focus on with our training, but same thing, like our body adapts. So thus the stimulus that we need increases. So within this, like, if you're still making good progress, if you're still getting good pumps, good disruption for your movements, really there's not necessarily a need to change your program. Now, really how this works is like with our clients, typically like most mesocycles will run four to six weeks in the end of a mesocycle, it's just signaled by a deload. Now within that, basically what I'm looking at is, okay, how are your movements progressing across the mesocycle? So I'm looking like movement by movement. Hey, how are we progressing here? Um, are you still getting good pumps, good disruption on this movement? Did we hit some PRs or did we like see noticeable progress within this rep range across the muzzle cycle? Is there any joint pain or like any discomfort associated with this movement? No? Okay, cool. Then the reality is like, honestly, the best thing for us to do if the goal is still hypertrophy and we're still progressing well, is probably to use most of those movements again this coming muzzle cycle. Now, like there's a little bit more nuanced to this than that, but I mean, like really, I think 
like for hypertrophy, you can stay in a hypertrophy focused style of training for a very long time, but eventually we'll start to see like, okay, so we see your execution at the hack squat is on point. Um, we've been progressing for a long time, but progression is now starting to solve a little bit. So, Hey, let's plug in. And like the reality is with hypertrophy training, just after hammering the same movement patterns over and over and over, like sometimes we will have to plug in a slightly different variation of the same movement because sometimes we will see again, like some joint pain. Am I talking super fast? A little bit. Okay. I'll try, I'll try to slow it down. Somebody DM'd me and said, Hey, you should try to slow it down a little bit. I'm so used speak, to so. it, but now that <laughs> so you I'm gonna try to. It, yeah. Okay. Anyways. It's normal for us to occasionally, like in hypertrophy training, like, hey, we might need to slow, up, slow in a slightly different variation of that. Um, that said, again, like, as long as that kind of off the point there, as long as things are going well, we don't necessarily need to change the stimulus. But eventually we'll start to see either A, it really seems like strength is the right limiter here. So, like, when we're transitioning to a neural phase, for example, there's a couple reasons typically we'll do this. Most, I don't want to say most often, sometimes we'll see like within a, a client's form videos, like for example, let's say you're doing a, now like this is just how I've interpreted it. So take, keep in mind like other people that use a similar system might interpret it differently. But a lot of times we'll see like just actual strength is lacking, right? So like for example, somebody's doing, let's say a push up and they're repping them out, repping them out, repping them out, them out and all of a sudden they just fail out of nowhere and it kind of surprises you. And like we're seeing this in somebody's form video. A lot of times that tells us, hey, they're not necessarily as neurologically efficient, right? And a push-up is probably a bad example of that movement. But again, like we should be able to grind out a couple reps, reps should just slow over time till we eventually fail. It shouldn't just be like a boom, all of a sudden, like we're done. So sometimes like that can be a good sign that we need to transition into a neural phase like that. Another good reason could just be, hey, carb intake is lower, right? Because the reality is like if we're pushing for a hypertrophy style of training, but you're deep in a fat loss phase where carbs are lower, that style of training or similarly with like a local metabolic phase, which you don't have to get super deep into that, but um, those are going to require quite a few carbs. They're going to be very glycolytic. You've got to burn a lot of carbs training and you'll need a decent amount to recover from them, right? So when carbs are low and we can't necessarily match the way we're fueling you to the demand that we're placing on our body with our training, typically inflammation will be a little bit higher. You'll just basically feel smashed from your training. And it'll be much harder to progress. You won't feel as motivated to train, et cetera. Whereas if we enter like a neural phase where rep ranges are a little bit lower. So think like typically four to eight is less demanding in that regard. So we can recover from it a little bit better. Inflammation won't be quite as high. And it's a little bit more realistic to progress or at least maintain performance in a fat loss phase without worrying about losing any muscle without like absolutely smashing somebody. Now, on the flip side, if we're talking about like entering a metabolic phase, here, if we saw, for example, like, okay, when you're training your lower body, the rate limiter, the limiting factor isn't your quads or your glutes and just like this immense tension that you're feeling in those tissues like we want it to be, but rather the thing that causes you to stop the set is you just feel super nauseous. Okay, we know that we probably need to focus on bringing up your overall conditioning, right? One, local fatigue and the target muscles. So again, like glute fatigue, hamstring fatigue, et cetera, to be the thing that causes you to solve the set. But right now it's systemic fatigue, right? Like system wide can't keep up with the local demand. So we need to focus on basically improving conditioning, which is when we would implement something like a metabolic phase. But the reality is like most people cannot, like you can run hypertrophy for a pretty long time. I would say realistically, most people can go somewhere between three to six months. And I mean, a lot of people, depending on where you're at, could realistically probably continue. You got progress longer, but I like really we can stay in a hypertrophy phase for a very long period of time. Does 
all of that makes sense. It all makes sense. And I, I figured that would be your answer. I was going to, I'm just going to go a different route a little bit because one of the things you didn't touch upon is right. If things are really going well, and I've been there because sometimes it's like, well, they're going so well and maybe I want to push harder. I want to do something different or I'm getting bored. But if they are really going well, something that I've learned is they're going well. Like I take that and I'm like, I want to fucking smash it. Like I want to get after, you know, crushing weights or increasing reps. So if they're going well, like you said, it's okay to keep it the same. Just use that as fuel to, you know, push the weights harder or, you know, increase your rep range, whatever it may be. So just a different perspective or, um, you know, way to think about it, that it's okay that it's going well and it doesn't mean you need to change. But I have to say, it's funny as you were talking about the metabolic, um, we're doing walking lunges right now, like really explosive walking lunges, three sets of like 12 each leg. And so I hit the rep range, but I am gassed. And it's not a rate limiter, but when I am done yesterday, I was doing them and my husband asked me a question and I just like looked at him and put my hand up like, no, no, no. I'm taking these two minutes to breathe (laughs) and get my next, my next set in. But no, no, absolutely. That's very much like walking lunges um, and split squats. Definitely like a rear foot elevated split squat just to definitely give you that feel. Now, like one more thing to your point. I would say if things are going well, what I found most often is that's when people want to add more, but I would also be cautious of that because a lot of times it is like, Hey, what we're doing is working very well, but oftentimes more isn't necessarily better. Oftentimes more is actually like that desire that like, okay, things are going super great. I want to add more and see even quicker progress. Oftentimes what happens is okay. Now, again, that stimulus is much higher. Our recoverability isn't there and actually progress slows. Like, um, just because I'm sure she won't mind us shouting her out like Julie. Um, one of the things that we're always talking about is, Hey, things are going super well. And like, it will be like, Hey, what if we added, like, can we add a little bit more here? I'll push a little bit harder. And I'm always like, no, like, Hey, no, <laughs> like things are going so well. We want to continue to go well. We're not going to add more. We want to have that in our back pocket for like when things slow, then like maybe we can add more if it makes sense. But I also think like that's something to be careful with because I think a lot of times like, people don't have very long phases of where things are going well, because when things are going well, then like you want to add more and that's actually what solves progress. Does that make sense? That makes great sense. And I'm glad that you said that because I've been a victim of that where I'm like, you know, I've really wanted to work on my glutes and I'm like, I'll add a little bit more, but I'm not recovering or my sleep ends up being like complete trash. So it it ends up being detrimental if anything else. So I'm glad that you, you said yeah. that we circled back. <laughs> all right. Next question. Speaking of good. glutes, um, at home alternative for glute. It says hypertension, but maybe hyper. Ext- I think hyperextension is a safe bet there. Yeah, uh, that's what I got. Okay, so an at home sub for a glute hyperextension. Yeah, so basically there you just have to look at okay, what's the primary muscle that we're trying to work? Which in this case it would be the glute max, right? So we know essentially we just want it to be a hinge pattern of some type. And then where are we overloading the muscle the most? So typically like a glute dominant 45 degree back extension, we're going to be biasing kind of the shortened 
the shortened end of the range of motion, that's where there's going to be the most tension. So like in that case, um, typically, like if you're holding a weight, for example, when you are at the top of the movement where your body is essentially in a straight line, or like if you're doing a glute dominant back extension, your upper back would be rounded a bit. But essentially when we're at the top of the movement, that's where the lever arm is the longest. Um, and that's typically where it's going to be the most challenging, right? So it's hardest when your glutes are in the contracted position. So if we're at home, one, you can actually set up, like if you have a squat rack and a barbell available, have you ever set up like a hyperextension at home? Yeah. Well, I have yeah. one, so that that's beneficial. Oh, no. but yes, I have had to set one up previously. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, you can like set, set your barbell up at about hip height or a little bit low, below in your squat rack, put like a hip thrust pad over it, put dumbbells behind your feet, and then you can do a 45 degree back extension there. That said, like a glute bridge. So I would really say like a cast glute bridge or a barbell glute bridge from the floor would be a very, very similar alternative. Again, there, we're going to be overloading the glutes in short position. It's going to be, uh, and it depends on like what the bias is. If we're trying to like bias hamstrings a little bit more, hamstrings will still be working there, but there will be like as much stretch on them at the bottom. That said, we're not going to like a huge amount of load there. So really like if we're going to program like for that specifically, it's probably going to be more glute bias. So really I would say probably just do like a cast glute bridge or a barbell glute bridge. And that's going to be a pretty similar option there. Um, one other thing you could also do again, if you have a squat rack, I'm trying to remember what this is called a true coach, because this is pro something I programmed for a couple clients where if we're very much just focusing on the short position, you can put like a band around your hips or like run it, like attach it to both both sides of the squat rack, both of the uprights and like go like push your hips against it. So you're in the middle of the squat rack, basically like in a kneeling squat position where like your butts on your heels and do like a kneeling hip thrust into it. So the tension is greatest at the front of the movement. Now that's kind of like, would I choose that over a cast glute bridge? No, the resistance isn't going to be quite as good. And the setup's a little bit harder to nail. Plus like just as a general rule, typically like, uh, barbell or double for the most part unless again we're really trying to bias like a short and overload is going to give us a little bit more tension through a greater range of motion um but that's another thing that you could do in that case yeah yeah absolutely um i saw list uh lifting Lindsay the other day which you made a note of it too and it's it's sometimes interesting i i love when you get the repeats in the sense of it, it's like validation, like, okay, I'm going to try that. But even with the um, RDLs, you know, just really kind of having more of a, a little bit of a knee bend um, where you're hitting the glutes more than you are the hamstrings. And I always find it, I have to adjust sometimes my foot position or, you know, if where I'm, how much of a knee bend and when I'm bending as well, just to hit my glutes. Um, so I don't know if you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I think, I think first of all, Alex did an amazing job. Alex Bush did an amazing job breaking a lot of this down on our podcast on Monday. So I would say if you want like 60 minutes of a deep dive into glute training, definitely go listen to that episode as well. Um, but I mean, typically, so if we're looking at like an RDL pattern, if we're bending, if we're allowing our knees to bend a bit more, 
we're typically going to be able to get a little bit more hip flexion. Basically, we're going to, be able to push our hips back further, which is going to create a greater stretch on the glutes. Whereas if we're keeping our knees a little bit more locked, or not necessarily locked, but it's just like a light bend, that's going to be a, and thus we're not able to push our hips back as far. That's going to be a more hamstring bias RDL. So yeah, within that, like we could also look at how are you doing these different movements to target the glutes. That said, like when we're looking at the programming side of it, and we're looking at, okay, we have lengthened overload movements and we have short overload movements. If like building glutes was our priority, I probably wouldn't have. So the, like within that, they're kind of an opposite in this, in this spectrum, right? So think like in a Romanian deadlift, the movement's going to be hardest at the bottom of the rep, right? So that's when the muscle tissue is going to be lengthened. So that's where it's going to be most challenging. Whereas in the back extension, the movement's going to be hardest at the top of the rep where the glutes are in the short position. So now like this is somewhat all splitting hairs. <laughs> like you could listen to this and like, Hey, it really doesn't matter if they're both hip hinges, we're hitting the same general muscles. So we don't have to necessarily go into those two nuances, but like within our program and I wouldn't necessarily consider those two like interchangeable. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. We only have one more question, Jeremiah. How to set a macro split for my first build phase. Thank you. All right, so here, first it's a good idea to know about where your maintenance calories are. And then we're basing this all around the rate of gain that you want to see, right? So in a building phase, we shouldn't be in a calorie deficit, right? Our goal is to give your body plenty of fuel, to send your body the signal that, hey, we actually have a little bit of excess fuel because muscle tissue is very calorically expensive. It takes a lot of calories to build and it takes a decent amount of calories to maintain, right? So if we're not sending our body the signal that excess fuel is available, it doesn't make as much sense to add more muscle tissue. Now this varies somewhat, like somebody that's brand new to training, they can see a pretty crazy recomp where it's, Hey, I'm losing fat and I'm building a lot of muscle at the same time. But the like, more advanced you get, um, typically like the more true that is. And similarly, when we're looking at rate of gain, so a macro is in a building phase we're really adjusting about around the desired rate of weight gain, right? So to bring it back to my original point, because we're not in a deficit, we know we're not losing weight via body fat, right? So if you're not gaining weight slowly because muscle tissue has weight, if we're not slowly gaining some weight, we're probably just not seeing any muscle growth, right? So we do want to see like a slow rate of gain over time. Now, again, typically, this is going to be somewhere between 0.25 and 0.5% of body weight per week that we're looking to gain. Now that won't like come on perfectly every week. Typically I look at it as like over the course of a month, we want to see you gain somewhere between one to 2% of your body weight per week. Right. And if we're not seeing movements in the right direction after two weeks of hitting these macros will increase or decrease if you're gaining too fast for consecutive weeks. Um, but really then the more advanced you are, the thing to understand as well is like the more advanced we are, the slower our potential to build muscle tissue is, right? Somebody that's new to training can build muscle very quickly. So that's where I would err more towards, okay, we want to gain about 0.5% of body weight per week. Um, because those excess, which would mean you would be eating more than somebody that was more advanced. Because again, we know that like those excess calories we're taking in, we have a greater potential to build muscle. So it's likely that more of those calories are going to be sent to growing muscle tissue versus fast storage. Whereas like somebody that's more advanced, if we're also gaining, aiming for like that quick rate of gain, because we know they're just not going to be able to add muscle as fast, 
that means that a lot more of those extra calories that we're taking in are likely going to be diverted to fat versus like building more muscle. Like you can't force feed gains, if that makes sense. So basically I would base your target rate of gain around that. Um, and then from there, so for most people, this is going to basically mean like I would start a couple hundred calories over maintenance. I think, I think generally somewhere between like 200 and 400 calories over your maintenance intake makes the most sense. And then from there, we're just looking at, okay, what's the rate of gain that I've seen. Now, when we get into actually setting the macros, typically what I would do is set protein right around one to 1.1 grams per pound of body weight over time. Typically, like in a building phase, as we add more calories, we're going to bring protein intake up a little bit simply because when we're adding in more carbs, which is typically where we're going to be adding like most of the calories, we're going to be more trace proteins. So like proteins from plants, for example, that have worse bioavailability, our body isn't as good as you, our body isn't as well able to turn those into actual muscle protein. Um, more of those are going to be coming in as our carbs sneak up, right? So doesn't make sense for us to also increase the protein intake a little bit to make sure that we're still getting in a good amount of quality of protein. Um, but typically we'll set protein like between one to 1.1 grams protein per pound of body weight. Um, now from there, I'm generally going to keep fat intake relatively low. This varies somewhat by the individual, but generally I'll keep fat intake right around 0.3 grams per pound of body weight. For most people, that's enough to where we have a little bit of dietary flexibility. We can work into fatty foods. We're getting in and all the essential fatty acids that we need, like EPA and DHA. But past that point, like there's not going to be too much benefit to us taking our fat intake any higher. Whereas if we look at your carb intake, okay, we know that this is really going to help best fuel your training. Most of the training that we're going to be doing to build muscle is going to be fueled by it. It's most of your sets are probably going to be somewhere between like 20 and let's say 50 to 60 seconds, right? So primarily it's going to be fueled by, if we look at your energy systems, by your uh, anaerobic lactic energy system, which runs off of carbs, right? So if we don't have adequate carbs, we're basically going to be short on fuel in our training, which will yield less than ideal outcomes. Um, but from there, then we also know that like when we are training, we're going to be increasing insulin sensitivity, which is going to mean that more of the carbs that we take in are going to be shuttled towards muscle tissue versus being stored as fat. Carbs also have a higher thermic effect. So like when we're discussing like why higher carbs versus higher fat, carbs have a higher thermic effect. So we burn more of them during digestion. I'm in the process of our body actually converting like glucose to something that can be stored to store as fat is a little bit more complex than like fat being stored as fat. That's again, like kind of minutia and nothing that you need to worry about too much. But as a whole, like for, if the ideal outcome is I want to build as much muscle tissue as I can, while still like avoiding or mitigating as much fat gain as I can. I think like something like that, where essentially one, two, and we could definitely go up to like 1.2 grams of protein per pound of body weight, about 0.3 to 0.4 grams of fat per pound of body weight, and then fill in the remainder of those calories with carbs. It makes sense. Yeah, I think, well, I, I do love your answer because you've trained me well. I am currently in a build. I'm actually almost finishing up a build, but I was smiling as you were talking because I said, yes, I've done it right. And it's pretty much exactly what I've done. I will say when she, Lisa, who asked the question, and I'm not sure if she's, um, you know, newer into training or not, but when she talks about what her macro split is, 
it's crazy. My carbs are probably about 50% of my macros right now, which was so scary. But if you're looking at like percentage and splits, that's really where I know I'm at right now. But that was something I worked up to too. And I started with my maintenance levels and then most of it was carbs. Um, I started with, um, adding about 250 calories extra a day to see how that was. And it's interesting because we had this discussion previously. I think I asked you and Andrea question on the podcast, but my, I was overeating protein. And so I did end up, I ended up moving my protein up because I was really hitting probably an extra 15, 10 to 15 grams easily. Um, easily with just the increase in like you, you call it the trace protein with the increase in right. carbs, but my fat has pretty much stayed the same. Um, so just to answer that question, you are, you mentioned something about it might look different for someone who's new, newer into training as opposed to someone who's not, would that look a little bit different? So as far as the macro ratios there, no, it would really just be the data game that we're chasing. So with that more beginner individual, because they're capable of gaining muscle quicker, we would be basing, we would probably be pushing them for a little bit quicker rate of gain, right? We wouldn't want to hamstring your potential to make all these newbie gains by keeping calories unnecessarily low. So that would be the only thing where like, I would still essentially follow the guidelines I laid out there as far as protein fat and carbohydrate ratios. It would just be like, you're probably eating more overall. So thus really you're probably eating more carbs overall because you are chasing a bit quicker rate of gain. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes great sense. And I know she's talking about macro split and obviously making sure you have the right training based around that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's another important part of it is like in a building phase, I think that people can almost get the conception is that a word the concept that's not not that's not the right context like conception is um anyways uh not the right context for that word i think people have the misconception sometimes that a building phase is just about nutrition nutrition is a very important part of this but like i know you've seen this like coming from a CrossFit style of training to a personal style of training, right? We also need to make sure that training is is aligned with the goal, right? Like we can eat in a surplus, we can gain weight, but the effort uh, and the specificity within training and the consistency also definitely has to be there to make gains. Whereas like in a fat loss phase, it is definitely like we want to train to support muscle growth. But the primary driver of fat loss is going to be what you're doing for nutrition. Whereas a building phase is much more. Um, eating more food is going to be permissive to building tissue, but we also have to have the stimulus that we need. We have to have the recovery in place to actually go. Yeah. Cool. Yep, I agree. Absolutely. Um, and I think that is all we have for today. Yeah. Yeah, that is all we have for today, Jeremiah. Perfect. Well, as always, we appreciate you guys joining us and we will talk to y'all next time.